0: they wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Tingling ling ling city desk. Pull the press, pull the press, extra, extra read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh newspapermen meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press.
1: The media project is your half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues of the recent days. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union, here with my colleagues to Give you some discussion and hopefully some insight into the issues that are in the news media these days alan Shartak is here the ceo of northeast public radio columnist commentator barbara lombardo former editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of that paper and the troy record and ira festfeld who was for many years publisher of the kingston daily freeman before that was the editor and the sports editor and a man of many talents as well alan ira and barbara great to have you all here and thanks to our audience for joining us Let's talk first, if we could, about the Derek Chauvin murder trial. You know, a lot of people have been paying attention to this on the media. And I just wonder for your views about what we are able to get as news consumers. Alan, what do you think it is that is drawing people to this story so much? Why are people so wedded, if that is the case, to this one particular trial?
2: I suspect, Rex, because the justice system in America is on trial. That's what I think is happening. And I can't get my eyes off it. I just watch it and watch it and watch it. Look, race comes into it. Floyd was black. The way that this is coming down is that everybody has to make up their minds and see whether or not the justice system works. To me, the accused is guilty, but others will disagree with that. And then if it comes out that one person on that jury says he wasn't guilty and held up and all hell breaks loose in the streets as a result of all of this it's a very potent political story and I think a lot of people have their eyes on it and as far as calling on me first Rex, why are you always picking
3: on me) <laughs> Is that Charlie oh, Brown? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, you got
1: to be old enough to know the music. Absolutely. Well, let me I tell you something.
3: I, I don't want to diminish the importance of this trial. I agree with Alan in that sense completely. And I'm glad that they're offering live coverage of the trial for those people who want to watch it. Uh, I have not watched a minute of the live coverage. I'm old-fashioned in this respect. I'm perfectly content with reading the New York Times the next day and getting a complete and thorough summation of what uh, occurred I watch the nightly news until you get six or seven minutes of it there. So I'm glad we have the choice, but I'm not investing any of my time during the day to watching it live.
4: I started to watch the trial, especially after Alan had spoken about it on last week's media project, and I realized this is an opportunity that I'm missing to see what's going on live and it really is a great education I think everyone should be watching at least bits and pieces of it to see the demeanor of the prosecutors and the demeanor of the defense attorneys and the need to come up for the sidebars and how people are answering the questions I think that's all a part of the storytelling that's really good, although I agree with Ira that i like to get the summary. I think reporting in context is so key for this story, and I was swapping back and forth between Fox and CNN to see what angles they were taking when they would have those little sidebars, which would you know a break in the action. And even in this example, there's clear evidence of the different storytelling on those two stations where Fox was trying to emphasize how... Oh, looks pretty clear that Floyd was on drugs, taking drugs. Let's see how the use of drugs has contributed to his death. And the other side is talking about the excessive use of force and how the experts are saying excessive use of force did it. It had nothing to do with the drugs. Mm -hmm. And talking about putting something in context, the expert that was on the stand was asked to listen to the same tape twice. And when the prosecutors gave only a snippet of the tape, it sounds like he's saying, I ate too many drugs. When the defense has him listen to a longer piece of that tape, it could sound like he's saying, you know, I'm not doing drugs, I ain't doing drugs, whatever. And so the same tape, but with a longer piece, which means putting it into context, which is part of the job for journalists, interesting to see how it's used in the trial as well.
1: You You know, as a long-term courts reporter, actually, my favorite beat when I was a reporter was covering the courts, and I have to say that one of the things that people don't understand if they don't watch a trial in its entirety is that full range of evidence that comes in, and you don't know as you're watching it what's going to end up being crucial, and sometimes what a reporter, what is most newsworthy is not what is most relevant to guilt or innocence to the actual verdict. So you really don't know what's going to happen. I think you're exactly right. The context is what matters. Of course, what's different about this is this is one of those rare cases where you have everything on tape, let's say, or everything in video. You have the crime itself, if this is judged to be a crime, and you have the arrest, the arraignment, the trial. It's all there for people to see, which is really a rare thing.
2: Thank you, Rex, because I think you guys are all so arrogant, the three of you. And the reason I say that, other than to be, unusually provocative is that in the end if you're watching all of it and I think you hit on some of this Rex to be fair if you're watching all of it you decide what's important not the newspaper reporter who is writing the story because they are limited in what they can say and how much they can emphasize and what they do and so from where I'm sitting newspapers come in second best by far
1: do you know much about covering the uh, trials, Alan? Have you ever, uh, oh, ever been just it. suggesting that perhaps oh. a, a court reporter can help you to understand some things that you may not, despite your wisdom and having a PhD unlike the rest of us, maybe that you don't so know everything about the trials. That, just that suggest
2: so, Well, we've already heard that your favorite beat was the courts. So that makes yeah. it very, very special. But I do have to say that there's a certain amount of arrogance in what you say, because each of us has to make up our mind if i read the new york times as has been suggested or i even read the washington post you're going to find different things that have been emphasized by the reporters that means the reporter becomes the decider of what's important in a trial whereas if i'm watching it and i did watch i've been watching it assiduously i make up my mind don't you see
3: Well, there aren't a lot of people who have eight hours to to sit and watch TV like that all day, and particularly for something as often as slow as this trial is. I used to give speeches about, you could send five reporters to any event, whether it's a town board meeting or a courtroom or a baseball game, and come back with five different lead paragraphs, and each of the five would be right. You're quite correct. The reporter, the print reporter, sits through a trial, a day's proceedings, and then goes back and sits down at a keyboard and writes what he or she thinks is the most interesting, informative, and important part of the trial. But you may not agree with that, and that's fine. But if you are not going to watch the trial live, and if you're interested in following what happened, you're going to pick the source of news that you believe is the most accurate and trustworthy. In my case, it's the New York Times. Others might say it's the New York Post. But again, that's the choice that you have to make when you're a consumer of news.
4: Ira, I think you're onto something with that, and I can remember, even if it was covering a city council meeting, and if the Saratogian and the Daily Gazette and the Times Union and the Post Star were all covering the same event, I would look the next day to see how the story was covered and which element was chosen to emphasize for that story. And a lot of times it was generally clear what was the main thing and everybody would maybe focus on the main thing. But there were times when the reporters at the different papers focused on a different angle and depending on the depth of their experience and background and knowledge of what they're writing, the stories would be quite different. It would be like, were they at the same meeting?
1: Yeah, that can happen. And it doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. It just means that there might be different elements that seemed important. And it is also true that reporters sometimes make mistakes. You know, in that context, by the way, we ought to talk this week about the 60 Minutes question, let's say, it could be that it's a sloppiness on the part of 60 Minutes, which is a very powerful brand in news. 60 Minutes ran a story suggesting that the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, gave the grocery chain Publix preferential treatment to distribute COVID-19 vaccines because Publix had donated $100,000 to DeSantis' reelection campaign. Now that's a pretty big deal, that's an explosive story, but you have to wonder when you see that about journalists perhaps drawing a straight line from one thing to another, when in fact it could be coincidental rather than causative, right? And that is a a danger that we encounter in journalism, isn't that right?
3: I I thought 60 Minutes dropped the ball on this. I watched very closely to hear the evidence that they had regarding what they alleged DeSantis did, and I didn't see it. We saw circumstantial evidence of it, and we saw DeSantis rebuke the reporter very thoroughly. And DeSantis, as Alan would say, he, I don't like. And it's annoying that he winds up, in my opinion, to have the higher ground here. I was very surprised and disappointed by how 60 Minutes handled this. Particularly given their track record for doing just the opposite and for nailing down stories and people when it's warranted.
2: Well, you, Ira, I do like. You, Barbara, I do like. I like you guys.
3: But nevertheless. I
0: I like.
2: Even though we're uh, arrogant. uh, (laughs) But nevertheless. uh, I think the main thing here is somebody like me, I know you're all condemning 60 Minutes. I don't see, I mean, you know, you give $100,000 to a politician and you get results in terms of what they sponsor or what they do. I think it's defensible, to be honest with you. And I would-
4: that's cause, you are linking a cause and effect. Yes, I am. You are making an assumption on cause and effect, which is
2: yes. Yes. Uh, uh, as, uh, yes
4: as a yes. as a teacher of journalism two hundred one, beware of that. You do not yeah. want to automatically assume that because publics donated money that that was what happened. Did we look to see who else they donated mm-hmm. money to? Do they donate money to both candidates? That was an assumption. You know what happens when you assume.
3: Yes,
1: You don't even want to do this in terms of the way you structure a story. I remember as a beginning reporter, I think it was probably the first time I ever covered a loss of life in a fire uh, at a mobile home where a woman, the firefighters actually took me in and I saw the body in this mobile home. And the story that I wrote said that neighbors said the husband had been seen leaving the home moments before flames were licking from the windows and that was true but the way that i wrote it made it sound as though he He had some role yeah and that was just a terrible offense on my part as a young reporter which the grieving widower pointed out to me a couple days later when he came into the newsroom after having read the story that i wrote about his wife's death terrible thing and obviously here i am 45 years later, I haven't gotten over it. So journalists have to be careful about that kind of thing, about any kind of causality, about even just the way you phrase something. And in this case, even Democratic officials in Florida say 60 Minutes got it wrong, that no one from the governor's office suggested Publix, as the Democratic head of emergency management in Florida said, it's just absolute malarkey.
3: I don't know if you remember, there have been some behind-the-scenes footage at 60 Minutes over the years, maybe on their anniversary, the 50th anniversary, and there were some clips of classic arguments between Mike Wallace, the famed reporter, and Don Hewitt, who was the head honcho of that program, and they would be screaming at each other, and Hewitt would say to Wallace, you don't have it, you don't have it, you don't have it, and he would keep pushing him because he wanted to make sure the story was nailed down, and I, I just have to think that that didn't happen, and of course, both of those fellows are long gone. But I don't hear in that story that we're talking about that that kind of vetting was done or, or else I don't think it would have made it on the air.
1: So can
2: we say this is a three to one decision? The three of you taking the opportunity to crash into 60 Minutes, the premier journalism program, and this is your chance to say a little gotcha to them or me who say it looks pretty reasonable to me what they
1: said.
4: I think it's neither, Alan. We're not saying, "Hey, we got you, you big nasty 60 Minutes," and uh, and I don't think you're correct either. So the, the the point is that if they're going to say something, they need to be able to back it up and not just like drop a little bomb there and walk away. There's accountability, and humans make mistakes. Journalists make mistakes, but as Rex it. explained, journalists can have it can have far-reaching repercussions. There was just a recent lawsuit where the sports announcer is suing Gannett and other journalists that said. He used a racial slur on a hot mic It's been in the news recently And the reports depended on anonymous sources Saying that it was this person But it wasn't that person It was the other person So the person wrongly maligned is suing And, And I feel strongly about this I had a case similar to that at the Saratogian Where you rely on official, in other words, anonymous sources That you think you can rely on And you put somebody's name out there It's a terrible thing And you need to be held accountable for it
3: well, I don't think that that yes, suit will I... go very far. From what I read, it certainly was a mistake, but I don't believe it was malicious. And by the way, I think you know how Alan is always saying that Rex is trying to impress the New York Times so he would get a job there. I I think Alan is auditioning to be the new Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes.
2: Negative on both. <laughs> Negative
3: on both counts. Oh,
4: I'm not. I'm not even going to well, go there. It. Well, you bring down the average age of 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, may, maybe that suit won't go anywhere, and it wasn't malicious. I don't know if it would, you could call it re- reckless disregard of the truth to rely on an anonymous source to say this was somebody. You're not even naming the person who told you that information. It was sloppy at the very least. And and if it was you whose name was out there getting maligned in social media and in the press, then you would probably feel
1: more strongly about it. One of the points that this underscores is the uh, essential care when using unnamed sources. There are often stories that you can't get unless you're using an unnamed source, but this has to be very carefully policed by editors and producers. At the Times Union, we had a rule that if you were using an unnamed source, someone else other than the reporter herself or himself had to know who that source was, talk to your editor about it, explain why it is that you had to use an unnamed source. Oftentimes, a reporter can go back to the person who was their so-called unnamed source, the person who gave them this, and get that person to say, yes, okay, you can use my name, you can put it on the record. And that establishes more credibility for news consumers, but it's also a way of assuring that someone is not just dumping on somebody else, not just using a reporter as a vehicle, let's say, to get a point across. So the use of an unnamed source is sometimes essential, but you just have to guard it and be much more careful with it than I think a lot of journalists are these days.
3: I got the sense several years ago, when media was was being criticized for just what you described, people didn't like unknown sources. They didn't trust the media. They weren't trustful that the media wasn't simply making these sources up. And And I got the sense that there was far less use of unnamed sources. And that became, in my mind, turned around during the Trump administration, where there were leaks all over the place from inside the White House, and frequently were cited to be by unknown sources. I understand that there are times when you can't get the news otherwise, But I still believe that it's very dangerous to the credibility of the individual organization to use unnamed sources. Well,
2: if I may, you know, it's not easy for me to get a word in over here.
3: But if I may,
2: I would just like to say that when I read the rather tortured explanations in The New York Times as to why they're using an unnamed source. I'm always mirthful, I always think that's great that they have to do that. But you know, one could approach all of that with a spirit of disbelief.
1: Are you saying that it's good or bad that they're using these unnamed sources? I don't quite understand.
2: No, what what I was trying to say, uh, Rex, and I'm glad you're holding me to account, is it's amusing as opposed to good or bad. It's amusing that they feel they have to torturously tell us why they have granted anonymity to the source.
3: Ah. Well, but that, I think yes. that's important because I think they recognize that people don't necessarily believe that there is an unnamed source, so you you have to explain to them the procedures behind it. It's a mini-media project. They're well, trying to explain their, to their readers what's going on.
2: There are those of us who don't believe them. I mean, the more tortured the explanation gets, the more people are saying, hmm.
3: So you would suggest that they simply use the unnamed source and not explain why?
2: No, I simply suggest that... It be kept to a bare minimum of what you do. I mean, you know, this idea of unnamed sources, and we have seen examples even within the Times organization, right? Wasn't Jason Blair a good example of that? or am I re- Jason Blair, yeah. Janet Cook at the Washington yeah.
1: Post. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Years there's, really so really names. Yeah. Yeah, there's so few I, of them. There's so few of them that you can
4: name them.
2: Well, I'm not so sure I agree with that, Barbara, because. Those are the ones who got caught. Now, Retz is going to say, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm saying, those are the ones who got caught. How about the ones who didn't get caught?
1: (laughs) Okay. If you folks, by the way, listeners, would like to join the conversation, media at wamc.org is how you can chime in and voice your support for Dr. Shartok
3: or for any of the rest of us. (laughs) Make sure you sign your name. We don't want to use unnamed. Sign your name.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Subject line, Alan, is wrong slash
1: all wet. (laughs) And believe me, we get them. Media at wamc.org. You know, this issue of distrust in the media is quite something. There is some new polling data that underscores the fact that the distrust in the media that grew during the Trump administration, uh, really, while distrust certainly predated Donald Trump, it reached an all-time low, that is, trust in the media among Republicans while he was president. And in fact, it's become part of the identity of the Republican Party is to be anti-media. This is particularly problematic because Republicans are isolated news consumers is one way to think of it, because by a very large margin, Republicans tend to have a single news source and that is Fox. So it is quite remarkable, hostility and distrust of the news media has become a point of political identity among Republican voters. And it's hard to see how the media can counter that. I don't know how you actually come back from that kind of a situation to be able to reach the public at large. Well, Anybody well, have any suggestions yeah, well, here?
2: All you have to do is find three apologists for the media like we have here who will say under any circumstances the media is you know, right and there's an answer for that. Is that too caustic?
3: Well, I, I don't know if it's too caustic, but I think this is a tremendous problem for the media, and it's a, and more than that, it's a tremendous problem for this country. When you have one set of media saying the world is round and you have another set of media saying the world exactly. is square, somebody is wrong, first of all. But second of all, how can they be so disparate? You need to have some shared information that everybody agrees is accurate. And even in contentious times in decades past, there was disagreements on major issues But not on facts Generally speaking anyway And where we are now To your point, Rex I don't have an answer for it I don't As long as there is this Divide in this country Philosophically And the media Are in their own corners I don't know if one of them Has got a cry uncle Or what But if something big Doesn't happen Like, uh, I don't know A war that brings us All together I don't know how We're going to get out Of this mess And it's a big mess I don't know
4: that war Will bring us together Because 9-11 Brought us together briefly And it turned out to be something that didn't last. I think that CNN and, and the mainstream stations and the newspapers need to keep reporting the truth and hope that it reaches the audience that is currently not listening or not believing. There was one example CNN's Oliver Darcy pointed out the other day that While Fox is talking about, and the Republicans are talking about whether there should be vaccination identification online or in cards, and what a terrible thing that will be, an imposition on our liberty, and Darcy points out that the network, Fox is requiring audience members for a new show to take a COVID test and bring documentation to the door, pass an online health screening. So they are hypocritically doing what they are decrying to the public, and we need to keep telling the public that.
3: But the people who need to hear that are not reading or listening to those sources. They're only listening to Fox. They're not going to hear what MSNBC or CNN are saying.
4: Yeah, I don't have the answer. No. Terrible. It really is. It's frightening. All I can think of is to keep at it and hopefully I can show it to my cousins and they'll come around.
1: You can hope. I did want to get to one other topic before we run out of time this week, and that is the topics that reporters are asking about in the White House press briefing room. There's been a small study of this uh, done by students at St. Bonaventure University out in western New York. And here are the topics that are of greatest interest to voters, what voters say should be the priority in the country. Number one, strengthening the economy. number two, the coronavirus. So what topics are the top topics that are being asked in the White House briefing room? Well, the answer to that, according to the St. Bonaventure study, is number one, health. So that includes coronavirus. Number two is immigration. Number three is international affairs. Nothing about climate, nothing about race, nothing about education. What does this tell us? Or am I drawing too much from this? Is this not an appropriate question?
2: Well, um, no, you, you're allowed to ask any question you want, but I think it is potentially a flawed study. Doesn't sound right to me. So, what happened is the professor assigned the students to go out and do the study. Isn't that right, Rex, as I remember? Correct. And, you know, it may turn out not to be so. You know, I love polls which say what are the most important things? We do it at WAMC. We say, what are the most important things? And people sometimes act because it's what their mother would have had them say as opposed to what's right. (laughs) So they say climate change, even though people don't always believe climate change, it is, of course, correct. that Climate change is the most serious situation we have. But I have a feeling sometimes they say what they perceive. People who are polled say what they perceive as what the answer should be as opposed to what it is. Are you following me?
4: Yeah, you also have to be careful about the methodology that was used, and is it a a true sampling, is it a scientific sampling or not? And the answers that the students obtained, you correctly ranked them as it came out, Rex, but those percentages were really close, so it could have flipped one way or another, and depending on the number of actual students, the gap between one item and another was, was not that much. And I think... The White House press corps has an obligation to ask the things that people are interested in about, but maybe also ask about the things that people ought to be interested in. And what is a federal press briefing? That's the place where you're going to ask about immigration and what's going on with immigration and, well, and well, how it's being well, reported. Th-
3: Don't you think that the White House press corps is a bit insulated? Biden had his first official news conference a couple of weeks ago, and everybody was psyched up to watch it and see how he would handle it. And by most accounts, he did very well. But who was criticized? The reporters, because there was not one question about Biden's primary initiative throughout his term so far, which is the virus. Not one question about that, and it suggests to me at least that the white house press corps was not aware of what people on the outside are talking about now i I would Caveat with that is where are the editors and producers who they must speak with prior to going into these press conferences? But I was shocked that there was not a question about the coronavirus during that press conference. And so maybe what the White House reporters think is most important is not really what the public thinks is important. And there we have
1: to draw the line because we're just out oh, of time. No. Ira gets the last word. Oh. All right. We are it's grateful so- to you all for joining and listening in, right? Aren't we, Alan? We're grateful. This show, what a <clears> an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith With gratitude to our producer Dave Gustina And to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project
0: other Actors upon a living stage Now such interesting people when they know they've got a people's fight to wage. tinglingling newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill.
3: The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening.
0: It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-ling-ling, circulation, ting-ling-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press.